worship together and go into the message. I want to read our passage for this morning. It's from Ephesians 5. It's going to be up on the screen, verses 21 through 32. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Who, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hates their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. May it continue to be a light that lights the path ahead. May we continue to hide your words in our heart that we would be able to experience holy communion with each other and holy communion with you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Ben Chattel. I'm the associate pastor here, if I haven't met you yet. Um, and I have the privilege of preaching number six, part six of our One Another series. And this week we're going to talk about that passage. We're going to talk about what it looks like to submit to one another. Does anybody remember growing up playing the, the game telephone when you were in school? Now, I don't remember playing this much as a kid, but I've played it before as an adult, um, helping with classes in various venues. Actually, in Chicago is one memory that I had where we were volunteering with a, a daycare and a preschool, and we were playing this game. So I, as the adult, was leading a bunch of students that I didn't know, a bunch of like eight and nine-year-old kids um, playing telephone. And that was when I learned, as an adult, <laughs> you have very little control over what happens when you're playing the game of telephone. Because I was the one at the beginning of the line. And as, for those of you who are unfamiliar, so the person at the beginning whispers into someone's ear a message. And then it goes from one kid to one kid to one kid to one kid to the end, and then the person at the end says what they heard. And the goal, I think the goal, is for whatever gets said at the end of the line is exactly the same at the beginning of the line. Now, when you're dealing with seven- and eight-year-olds, that's not what happens. So what happens is, is that I go, I have a dog and his name is Otto. And then it goes from child to child to child, and they keep going and going and going and going. And then, All right, what did, what did he say? Tommy smells like peanut butter. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that, is, that is not what I said. Let's try this again. With their teacher there, mind you. So then, okay. My dog's name is Otto. Goes from kid to kid to kid. Goes to the end. Sarah kissed Timmy on the lips. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I did not say anything about Timmy. I didn't say anything about anybody kissing anybody on their lips. That's kind of how information works for us as adults, too. We, we hear information, but a lot of times it goes through multiple sources, right? It goes, we, we hear something through a 
a television pundit who hears something from an article, who hears something from a report, from an eyewitness account for what actually happened. We, like, everything that we hear goes through a lot of filters. So a lot of times we have the freedom to really hear whatever it is that we want to hear. We can convert any truth into whatever we want that truth to be. So there's a real temptation for that in this world to kind of twist things how we want to hear them. And that happens even in the church. That happens with how we look at scripture. The word submission is definitely one of those words. It's definitely one of those, those ideas that goes through multiple filters of what it looks like to submit. There is a book called The Drama of Ephesians. Uh, it's, a, it's a book written by Dr. Timothy Gombas. And he makes the case for the entire book of Ephesians that the book of Ephesians is really this, this challenge to the church in the midst of oppression to, to really adopt a new understanding of its place, a new understanding of the responsibilities that the people of God have in the midst of their political, their, their religious environment that they find themselves in. So he notes that in chapter 5 in all of his research, it, you can tell how odd it seems that in verse 21, the first verse that I read, it specifically says that we're to submit to one another in Christ. But then it kind of immediately shifts to like premarital counseling 101. It's like, that, that, if we're talking about the church, where, what is all of this submitting and loving to your husbands and wife? What is all that business doing in there? So he dug deeper. And when you dig deeper into the historical context of, of this passage, who, if he, who Paul is writing to in the church of Ephesus, you see that Paul's reasoning for this language is that he was referencing a new way of looking at what they would know as the household code. So this is not just a reading for a modern-day marriage between two people. This was establishing, this was actually kind of establishing power structures for a community, relational dynamics for what would be the church. So in ancient political and philosophical writings, it was really common practice if you were to tell instructions, if you were to give some ethics to a group of people, you would boil it down to the smallest political unit, which in this case is a husband and a wife. It's a, it's a household. So they, they would boil all of their instructions for society into a small unit so you could understand. You could find yourself in that position. So Paul's not necessarily giving instructions for couples before they get married. What he's doing is he's laying out a broader vision for power dynamics in the kingdom of God. See, the world's political vision at that time, how households, how communities were, were structured back in that day, is that it was tiered. You, you very clearly had whoever was at the top. So you had your Caesar, you had your head of household. In this case, would be like your, your master. You'd have a master of a household. Then you'd have the family of the master, and then you'd have the slaves of the master. So those were the three tiers that everything was filtered through. That, those were the power dynamics that everybody adopted in that time. So the problem with that is that there was no dignity in that. There was no love in that. That was a system that was built for power, how you distributed power, how people attained power, how people submitted to power. So Paul was talking to a group of people, Paul was talking to a church that did not understand how love had any role or selflessness, submission, had any role in the household. It was very clearly everything was built on status and power. So Paul reveals in this new, this new kingdom ethic that this family of God, this household, is to embrace a life together that's fashioned with love, with equity, and with justice. All members of this family enjoyed that dignity and that honor, so everybody was a full participant. 
It's, it's, it's also seen in just how he structures his letter. He mentions the subordinate first. He mentions the less than in the instructions, where normally, culturally, you wouldn't even mention the subordinate. The instructions were given to the master to then give to people. He's, he's speaking directly to the subordinate. You also see that when he's speaking to those with power, he's not allowing them to leverage their power over the powerless, which is the structures of society, but that your power is a responsibility to be submitted. And then he even goes as far as to tell the subordinates, the ones at the bottom, the slaves, the wives, the ones that are under the control, to love their masters. Love, love had nothing to do with the social structures of society. There was no need to love your master. It was just, this was your lot in life. You were either the haves or the haves not. There was no love. There was no need for a relationship. It was a system that was just built on numbers and status, had nothing to do with your relationships. So these new relational dynamics, they're, they're meant to highlight that we all fall equally under the lordship of Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Not Jesus, not your housemaster, or not Caesar, not your housemaster, only Jesus. And even if you don't want to take my word for it, if you don't want to take Dr. Gombas's word for it, we see the last verse that we read in verse 32. We can't miss these verses like this. It says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This passage is clearly about how we submit to one another through selflessness, through love, under the lordship of Christ. There are new tiers being built. It's Christ and then everyone else. So with all of that background, we're going to discover today that submitting to one another requires an understanding and commitment to our relationships with both Christ and the church. Yes, Jesus did free us from sin, but he did so so that we, we had the freedom to love one another equally as he loves the church. This means that we allow our imaginations to be renewed so that we see others through the proper relational lens. We adopt a cruciform posture toward one another where power is not used against those who are powerless. Love is not a tool. Love is not something we use to manipulate to gain protection or to possibly gain some semblance of power. Love is just a byproduct. Love is a byproduct of the relationship that we all have with one another. That's what Paul is trying to get at. Giving ourselves up for the sake of others. Submitting to one another in unity as the body or bride of Christ. Now we see this dynamic being played out in the early church, and we'll get to the church in Acts in a little bit. But first I wanted to go back to the Old Testament. There's a small miracle story in the life of Elisha, one of the prophets. And I think that this story gives us a little bit of a picture of what this submission looks like, what this mutual equity looks like in the kingdom of God. So this is a point in Israel's history where the people of God are finding themselves in a world filled with corruption, just filled with idolatry. So God would anoint these prophets. He would rise up these prophets to stand against the corruption of those political and religious leaders, trying to point people back to God, leading people back to the ways of God, the truth of God. And sadly, over thousands of years, we continue that cycle where the powers of the world kind of twist the church, kind of try to drag the church away from what it actually means to submit to one another in Christ. 
So the story is found in 2 Kings 4. If you want to turn there, it's going to be up on the screen as well. It starts in verse 1. It says this, The wife of a man from a company of prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he had revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she says, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. So she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Now, it can be a little tempting to, to take this story and turn it into like a rags-to-riches story, right? The prosperity gospel story of just naming it and claiming it. This big miracle that takes place in this woman's life. But when you look at the characters in the story, the multiple characters in the story, this, this is a picture of submission. I think we find submission to God in every character in the story, even in Elisha. Elisha had to allow his routine to be disrupted. He, he allowed his life to be disrupted so that way God could use him to speak instruction to the widow. He had to be present with the widow. He had to hear the widow's story and then speak truth into her life. Then you have submission of the widow. She had to have the faith to humbly bring her burden, first of all, to Elisha, to share that she was in need, to share that she needed help. But then, when she was given crazy instructions, had to follow through with those instructions and take her jar of oil and go to every one of her neighbors and say, I, I know this is crazy, but if you would just give me your jar, God's going to perform a miracle in my life. Then you have the submission of the neighbors. And this is where I think we can start to see, see ourselves in the shoes of the story. You, let's be honest. Who really wants somebody to show up at their door and ask for something? To disrupt their day? Knock, knock, knock. We don't e I don't even like when people come to my door and give me something sometimes. Sometimes I like to just not have people know I'm there. Have you ever done that? Close the curtains and like, we're not home. And your kids are like, Daddy, someone's at the door. No, we're not. Nope. We, we don't like disruption. We don't like our routines to be disrupted. And then to hear that weird request, right? They have to be asking themselves questions. Like, why, how do I know her story's true? That's probably the first one we all go to, right? Like, how do we know this is true? And then we ask ourselves, well, if this is true, what, what is God going to do with my jar? What could... What could possibly happen if I give her just this little jar? This jar is not going to change her life. And then, if you believe and have enough faith in God to work miraculous ways, you might think, God doesn't even need my jar. She doesn't need my jar. I'll just pray and God will perform the miracle without my jar. Then I don't have to be disrupted. These are those questions that I think were coming from the neighbors. They had to submit themselves that they didn't know exactly what God was going to do, but they had to trust that God had a plan. 
So there are a few takeaways that we can see from submission, or on submission, that are highlighted in this story in 2 Kings, also in the passage from Ephesians, but then also we see it in the book of Acts, chapter 2, as we see the church become established. The first thing is this, that Christ-like submission is absent of pride. There is a lot of talk today in the world and even in the church about how we got to invest in ourselves. You got to stick to the script, stick to the plan, and I get health, wealth, and if I'm a part of the church, holiness. You just got to grab life, work your way through the crowd, grab life by the horns. We got to earn success, earn health. That does not sound like submission, does it? Submission is not a means to our own individual ends, right? It's not grasping for the power that Paul addresses in Ephesians. It's not calculating my investment. How much do I give based on how much I receive? It's not committing to the plan only if we achieve our own goals. So when we do this as a church, what we're doing is we're inviting competition and we're inviting comparison into the body of Christ. We then see those flawed power dynamics that Paul addresses. We start to see that wanting to climb up the ladder, trying to leverage our relationships in the church so we can continue to gain power. He exposes that in Ephesians. We miss out on the mutual and submission, the mutual love, because we lose continuity. We're not connected anymore because now we're competing instead of connecting. And what fills the space in our lives? What fills the space in the church when there's no love, when there's no submission? Pride. And pride, unfortunately, leads to all kinds of things. It leads to anxiety. It leads to dishonesty, isolation, fractured relationships. That's not the warmth that we're supposed to receive from the Holy Spirit, right? That's not the joy in the house of the Lord that we sing about, right? That's not a church that's built on the goodness of God. We also see with the miracle of the oil, and we see this in the two other miracles that Elisha performs on his journey, they happen behind closed doors. I, I don't really think that that's a coincidence because when we read the words of Jesus, Jesus also tells us that there are moments in our lives that if we want to connect with God and we want to hear from God, it has to happen in secret. It has to happen behind closed doors. This isn't a, hey, look at me, God's blessing me. This isn't, hey, look at me, the miracles are happening in my life. This is, close the door. When Jesus heals people, when Jesus provides people with what they need, he says, go and don't tell anybody. Go and change your ways, sin no more, but don't broadcast it. Don't wear a t-shirt that says, I was healed by Jesus. Hashtag for the region. Sorry. <laughs> that was mean, because I wear a t-shirt that says that too, so. But you get it, right? It's, it's, it's not meant to be done to prop us up. It's just, that's just part of being in the life of the church. That's part of being the family of God is that miracles happen in and all around you if we participate and if we surrender our pride. And then Christ-like submission also is fueled by faith. This is that story of the widow. We often find it really easy to submit to ideals, to submit to brands and slogans, because we've learned to trust that we get what we want, right? You wouldn't purchase something unless it was what you wanted. You wouldn't invest into something unless it was something that would, 
then return what you wanted. But that's not really the challenge that we're given when it comes to submitting to Jesus, right? I give of myself for how it blesses all of us. I give so we receive. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. So let's think about that. What are some of those fears that immediately come up when we talk about living a life of communal faith? Not just my own personal faith, but faith as the body of Christ. What fears creep up? The same fears that creeped up for the neighbors. We start asking questions. Does she deserve my jar? Are her kids just going to break my jar? What if I need this jar? I've earned this jar. Who's going to give me a jar? If I give her my jar and then I'm in need, who's going to give me what I need? Nobody gave me what I needed. We start asking those questions. So for us, it's not a jar, necessarily. It's, it's our routine. What is this going to do to my summer plans? What is this going to do to my weekly routine? What is it going to do to my reputation, my bucket list, my retirement? All these questions. We, we run We run what God asks us to do as a church through all these filters, all these questions. This story here, what what Paul is asking us is to have a faith, a communal faith in, in the promises of God. Not just hoping for what we can get out of this, but how we all can participate in this. There's a difference. And lastly, that leads to Christ like submission being revealed and follow-through. I asked Bob Burton, for those of you that, I'm sure many of you know who Bob Burton is, if he would share about this one another statement, that he would share about what it looks like to submit a life to the church. And one, that's because me and Bob have similarities in our stories. We both had careers, we had families, long before we ever were a part of any kind of vocational ministry. But also, just throughout my life and throughout Bob's life, we just kind of obeyed and worked and served in the church just however we fit, whether that was cleaning toilets or cutting the grass or preaching sermons. It was just kind of like submitting to the body of the church. And Bob's life has been the prime example, so I really wanted Bob to share his story. Bob is actually at a family reunion in West Virginia today, so we had decided what would probably be best is if we worked together and we talked last week, and I put together what would be Bob's story so I could share it this morning. There's also going to be a moment on August 7th. We'd love for you to join us for that service because we're going to be presenting Bob with a specific award. There's something in the Church of the Nazarene. It's called the Distinguished Service Award. So churches will offer that award to somebody in their church that has just been involved in so many things. This is a way to bless them and show them their appreciation. So we're going to show appreciation for Bob on August 7th. So we would love if you would bring a card. We'll have some notes that you could sign and write a little special thank you. But we want to make sure that we recognize Bob when he returns. But anyway, so here's the story that I wrote about Bob, just learning about his life. Bob Burton has spent his entire life in the Church of the Nazarene. He spent the first 34 years in West Virginia building a family. His parents always embodied and encouraged being faithful and finding ways to be involved. He gave his life to Jesus as a teen at a youth service And he doesn't really have any memories of life without being immersed in the life of the church. This carried over when God opened a door of opportunity at a steel mill way over in Portage, Indiana, where he then would be blessed with 34 years of employment. 
Even though he left West Virginia for Portage for a job opportunity, he knew that God also was going to open some doors for ministry if he would continue to submit. So he did. I'm sure that many know the name Bob Burton, and that name rings familiar to many of those as he's been around long enough here at Real Life. I sat down with Bob shortly after moving here and went through the scrapbook that he had made to remember all the years of love and all of the memories of him and his family and their pouring out of love to the community. There are people in the church today because of Bob's faithfulness to things like the bus ministry where they would pick up kids and take them to Sunday school and take them home. There are people here to this day because of the the Dare to Care ministry that Bob and a team set up, where if somebody was new in the church, they would go to their home and they would visit, or if somebody they hadn't seen in a while, they would go and check in on them and pray for them. There are people here today as part of Real Life Community Church that Bob loved on their family, cared for their family, and helped them walk through what it looks like to say goodbye to their loved one as they go through the process of having a funeral. In fact, the very first funeral that Bob did was for a family that is still here at Real Life Community Church, which, by the way, was funeral number one out of 830 funerals. Bob was a servant. He also was the choir director. He was the Sunday school superintendent. He stayed committed to the family of God through many years, pastoral transitions, program changes, Bob and his family always remained faithful. And he also did all of that as a volunteer until he retired from the mill. It wasn't until he retired from the mill that he took on his first vocational ministry position as the visitation pastor. And that's where Bob started to put together his visitation log, which is what me and Pastor Rich refer to as the book of Bob Burton. It's a book about the thickness of a yellow pages full of every single person that he visited in the church and in the community. Every call for encouragement, every visit for comfort, every prayer, every grocery bag. Bob knew that there was value in those moments, so he recorded those moments. Bob submitted his life to Christ through the body here at Real Life for now over 55 years. This past year, we said goodbye to Bob's wife, Norma, who he credits often for his ability to be able to submit to the church for so long. They had to make many sacrifices as a family, but they had made a commitment to always put Christ first and always submit themselves as they could to the church for the Lord to do as he pleased and bless the people that he's placed in their lives. During our time talking, I asked Bob, I said, how could you possibly sustain that passion for 55 years? He just smiled he said, we've always been fortunate to be blessed with a church family, and we never wanted to take the body of Christ for granted. When it comes to all that we've given to the church, I wouldn't change a single thing. And then he had advice for me, because that's what pastors do. They give advice. He said, always preach and teach the follow-through when it comes to life in the body of Christ. He said that programs always fade, people will move on, but What follow-through is when you get to experience the love of God in the church. He said, in loving community with the church. And that's the shortest version that I could write for the story of Bob Burton. But again, I I really want to encourage you to come on the 7th. We're going to try to appreciate Bob and let him know how much of a blessing he is for the church. So that's Bob Burton's story. For me, Ben, not Bob, it was actually 
just about a year ago, yesterday, I think, I stood in front of a body of believers at a church. I preached a sermon. And then I had to say that what follow-through looks like for me and my wife Hillary and our family was that we had to say goodbye. And that was hard. I'm not resigning, by the way, in case, in case anybody thought that's where this was going. But it just shows that there are times in our lives that we have that jar. And some of those decisions are more difficult than others, but ultimately we all have that opportunity to decide whether we're going to follow through, whether we're going to obey. What is it going to look like for us to submit what we have in our lives in order to bless the house of the Lord? The church of Acts that we're going to see in Acts 2, they really didn't, they didn't have a choice. They had to submit everything. They were in a world that, was, that had so much political pressure, so much religious pressure, that they were just bent on wiping out the name of Jesus in history. They wanted to make sure that nobody remembered what took place in the life of Jesus. So for the church of Acts, they had to walk with faith. They had to let go of all their pride. They had to embody follow-through. There are three distinct moments in in Acts chapter 2 that reveals the church's submission from obedience into that follow-through. From hearing the truth recognizing their position in the truth, in the church, and then follow through. In verses 1 through 13, we see the power of the Holy Spirit come. We see the Holy Spirit be received. We see the miracle. We see the miracle. And then, in verses 14 through 41, we see that, that Peter preaches this message of Jesus with boldness and clarity. He preaches to the masses of what this new kingdom is going to look like, what Jesus came to do, what Jesus died for, Then, importantly, we see the follow-through. We get to the fruit of the Holy Spirit's power. Not just in the miracles, not just in the message. It was in the movement, the response for me and you, the follow-through. Here's what happens in, in the church in verse 42 of Acts 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That looks and reads to be a lot deeper, a lot richer, and a lot more relational than just showing up for a pep talk on a Sunday morning. Submitting to one another is clearly saying, God, I don't know what you're going to do with this, with me, but I trust you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to submit to those who you've placed me with, trusting that you're going to perform a miracle. It might not be my miracle, but you'll do a miracle with my submission. I don't know what pulling up a lawn chair on a Sunday afternoon and watching a Challengers game, I don't know how you're going to bless somebody through that, but I trust that you will. I don't know what pulling a few weeds and picking a few strawberries is going to do. I don't know how that's going to be a miracle to bless my neighbors, but I trust that you will. Writing a letter 
praying a prayer, singing a song, painting a picture, any, anything, any gift that we receive, we have to ask ourselves, do I trust that God can take what I have in my life and perform a miracle to bless the family of God? When we take that posture, when we open our hearts and lives to each other, when we bring all of our gifts and burdens to the table, we bring our entirety of our lives together, we have to acknowledge and embrace our gifts. We have to acknowledge and embrace our burdens, while also at the same time accepting and embracing the burdens and the gifts of those around us. That's submitting. That's submitting to both God and to one another. And that's the beauty of the church as Christ designed. Now I get it. I love routine. You can ask Hillary, I love routine. Routine makes me more productive. Routine makes me less stressed. Routine just allows me to just go about my day. Everything can be scheduled and designed for peak productivity. But let's be real. The biggest enemy for us to submit to one another is often our own routines. The more I fall into my routine, the less I can identify with each other, the less I can submit to the needs of others because I'm so focused on my own thing. We become less aware of the lives that are sitting right in the seats amongst us that are going through pain, that are tempted to sin because we're locked into our own routines. That's not a culture of submission. You can look back at 2 Kings. See all of the routines that were disrupted in the miracle of the oil. The kingdom of God, the church that Jesus gave himself to establish, is just not about getting more butts in these seats. It's just not. It's about submitting. And we know, based on the trends and the tracking of the church in Western cultures, that statistical health does not mean relational health. Because just like in 2 Kings, you had to submit. You had to choose to break up your routine to speak a root of, word of truth into someone's life. You had to break up your routine to give of yourself, not knowing if you'd get it in return. You had to submit to know that I need to present my needs humbly before the people of God. We see that submission. And I'll be honest, this, this also can start to feel like it's a plea for more volunteers on Sunday. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. We're not going to be a better, stronger, more relational, healthy family of God just because we have more guitars up here. That's not what this is about. And if you feel called to be a part of a ministry, go for it. I'm not minimizing that, but what I'm saying is that that's not what we're seeing here in Ephesians. That's not the ethic that the kingdom of God is to live today. What that submission looks like is being aware. What Pastor Rich talked about last week, it's about being present in each other's lives. If I'm not present, if this, if this what we do here on a Sunday morning, is just about my routine, I can sit in my seat, I can say, that was a great word, Pastor. Oh, and Hannah and the team, the songs were beautiful. And this cup of coffee from Dale and his team, always the best. And then I can just leave. I got mine. I'm filled. Submitting as the church is being aware of the fact that maybe the person sitting right in front of me in those seats 
Just had to say goodbye to a loved one. Maybe the person sitting to my right doesn't know if they're going to cover next month's rent. Maybe the person behind me is struggling to forgive, is really struggling what it looks like to live this one another life out when they've been abused and abandoned. Maybe the person to my left no longer has the same household that they did the week before. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe there was a separation. Maybe their parents walked away from them. There are all of these burdens that we bring as the people of God living in a broken world. Can we just recognize that we have burdens while also recognizing that we have gifts? And presence is that gift. Not platitudes, not I'm praying for you, boom, back to my routine, but actually being present in people's lives. And this isn't, this is not me coming down on anybody, right? I could just be preached, this could be a mirror because I do the same thing. I get stuck in my routine. You get at the end of a Sunday and it's just, what did I miss? Who needed, who needed a word of encouragement? Who needed a hug? Even just a hug. I do the same thing. Jesus died for a community of faith. Not to just sweep us up. Loving one another. Restoring one another. And as we see this morning, submitting to one another. When we commit to the slow and intentional practice of submission, we experience what it feels like to love one another. I hope you're picking up on this throughout the series, that all of these other one another's, they're really just branches of loving one another. It's really just different ways that we can love one another because we can't truly love someone unless we see each other as one. If there's no unity, there's no love. When that happens, when we love one another, when we submit to one another, that's when the holiness of God is seen and is heard, but most importantly is felt. And that's when restoration, that's when this new life that we sing about actually is revealed in the world. So as Hannah and Adam come up, let's just simply ask ourselves the question, Are we the widow this morning? Do we have burdens that we feel need to be submitted to the body of Christ? Are we the neighbor? Are we hanging on to a gift, feeling that nudge that somebody needs something that I have, even if it's something as simple as presence? For me, I feel like, honestly, we probably are both. We kind of swim in that in-between where we have our gifts and we have our burdens, but we're just trying to juggle them in isolation. We're not meant to juggle in isolation. So as Hannah sings, I'm not going to come back up. I know, sigh of relief. It's almost done. (laughs) Let's just take this time as she sings and just reflect. Think about our strengths and our weaknesses. Maybe this is a time for you to just sit where you're at and quietly pray. But maybe this is a time for you to come forward up at these steps, kind of exposing yourself that you're in need of prayer, in need of care. Maybe this is a time where you know that somebody in this room has been struggling, and today is the day where you're going to walk up to them and just say, hey, I want to pray for you. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your story. I want to be present with you. 
That's what being the church is. That's what putting messages like this into action looks like. So let's just take a few moments. I want to read one more passage from Ephesians 2. And then let's just take a few minutes and just be the church. Have a little exercise of submission. Ephesians 2.17 says this, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, it's simple. Just reveal yourself to us. Reveal our strengths and our weaknesses. Reveal what we have to offer. Reveal who we are and who is around us in this place. Show us how we can submit to one another. Out of reverence of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Narrow as the road may seem, I'll follow where your spirit leads. Broken as my life may be, I will give you every piece. I hear.
you may go in peace.